Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 57 of Conquering Columbus. Uh, we got a great show lined up for you today with a special guest, uh, Mr. Chet Scott. Now, Chet is a good friend of ours, and he happened to be a leadership coach for us while we were wrestling with the Ohio State Buckeyes, and we got the chance to uh, sit down with him, talk to him a little bit about his career and what led him to being a, a leadership coach. We think you guys will learn a lot from this episode, and we hope you enjoy it. But before we dive into that, I want to take a moment and remind you all, go ahead and look at whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. Click that subscribe button. It really helps us out, and it'll make sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. The last thing we want to do before we get this episode rolling is take a moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again, and if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city, please reach out to me at mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. And one last thing before we get this episode rolling, Conquerors, we want to hear from you. There will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode, and if you guys could fill that out for us, we'd really appreciate it. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey everybody, welcome to Conquering Columbus. On this episode, we have Chet Scott with Built to Lead, and I'm going to kick it over to my co-host, Mike Minucci, and let him give you guys a little bit of background on Chet and tell you how we know him. Hey there, Conquerors. So, uh, Josh and I got the chance to learn from Chet with the Ohio State Wrestling Team under his Built to Lead program, and uh, before Built to Lead, Chet spent 20 years at CompuServe, where he led their sales team and 
CompuServe was the first major online service provider in the United States, and it was later purchased by AOL. He founded Built Elite in 2002, a program designed to awaken, challenge, and transform teams and individuals into one cohesive unit. They work with CEOs and teams all across the country looking to better themselves and their work. And uh, you can check them out at their website, builders4builttolead.wordpress.com, which will be linked in the show notes. And uh, welcome to Conquering Columbus, Chad. Thanks, guys. Good to be with you. Yeah, we appreciate it. You said you just got back from a trip where you were overseas. Yeah. And talk about that a little bit. What was that experience like? Uh, well, <laughs> we might spend the whole time on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just, I have one international client. Uh, the rest of my clients are all Columbus or Kansas City um, by design. That's another question if you want to go there. So I was over, I was over for work and then um, had my sons come. And I've got three adult sons, the youngest being a student at your alma mater, OSU, and the other two, 31 and 28, been out for a while. So it was my first vacation with three adult men as opposed to a family vacation with my three sons. Yeah, that's And it was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, kind of to kick things off, let's go through a little bit of background and get a brief bio on your early life, where you grew up, always lived in Columbus, college, and just give us a brief rundown on who Chet Scott is. Well, didn't grow up here. Um, my wife grew up here. I grew up in Salina, Kansas, so I am a primary Jayhawk, secondary Buckeye, <laughs> which may rile a few of your listeners. We'll edit that out. Yeah, you can edit <laughs> that out, but I am a Buckeye, but first and foremost a Jayhawk. So I grew up in a little town in Salina, Kansas. Went to school at a little school called Taylor University, which is in Upland, Indiana, middle of nowhere. And met my future bride there. I was a senior, she was a freshman. And uh, it didn't take me long to realize she was worth chasing. And since she decided after her freshman year to come back here, I decided, well, I might want to look for work in Columbus, Ohio. And so I did, came here, got a job with IBM, which back in that day, which dates me, this is 1981, working for IBM was like working for Google today. You know, it was like the technology company everybody wanted to go work with. And um, I didn't, I had taken computers and minored in them in school, but I knew they were going to be the next big thing. And I figured, what would be better than getting a job at IBM? So landed kind of the dream job right out of school, really lucky. I mean, really lucky. And uh, lasted there one year, went through their one-year training program, and they announced this new thing called the personal computer at the end of my first year. And I was training with them to sell what they called big iron, mainframes. Back then, mainframes were what all big businesses used to run their business on. And so everybody at IBM wanted to sell the big year because that's where the money was, that's where the prestige was, that's where the future was. And they came out with this new thing called the personal computer, and they said... We want all you new recruits, you college kids, to go sell that, which went from selling something that cost millions of dollars to something that cost like two grand. And uh, so I said, I don't want to do that. And they said, well, we don't have another job for you. And you've got to move to another city. And I said, I don't want to do that. I'm just getting married. And so IBM told me uh, they no longer needed my services. So I uh, had already been talking to this startup because I kind of smelled that this wasn't going to go well. And uh, I started the next day with this startup in town called CompuServe. 
and um, spent 20 years growing up, if you will, as a man and a businessman uh, with CompuServe and learned, I, I learned a ton about everything through those 20 years, but nothing more than when we, you mentioned in your intro, we were um, sold to AOL. That's actually a partial truth. We were sold to WorldCom, which sold the consumer business to AOL. The division I was with went with WorldCom. And so, again, you may not be old enough to remember this, but Bernie Evers was the CEO of WorldCom. And he's the CEO of WorldCom who bought 57 companies. We were 54. MCI, are you old enough to remember MCI? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> so MCI was the second largest telephone company. AT&T, MCI, Sprint, and WorldCom were the big four back then. Those were the big four carriers that you bought from. Well, WorldCom went up and bought the second MCI. So it was like a huge deal. And it was the deal that brought the entire company down because they couldn't really swallow it. And so I had a front row seat. I learned more in the two years that I was with WorldCom, if you will, than I learned in the 18 at CompuServe because I learned what not to do. I got the front row seat to seeing how you blow up a really good thing. Because it was a great company, but Ego drove the CEO to buy something he had no business buying. And because he bought it and he didn't know how to integrate it, it collapsed the entire thing. And you ought to know this. It was next to Enron. You know the Enron story? Well, this was the second biggest financial collapse in the history of U.S. business. Enron was the first. WorldCom was the second. So I had a front row seat you know, got to meet Bernie Evers, got to try to coach him, if you will, as an employee with what I saw going on. And I got to see how a leader ends up in prison, which is where he is today. And it's not because he was a bad man. Um, I don't really actually believe he's guilty of the fraud that the government uh, found him guilty of. Uh, I believe he was guilty of being... Uh, a guy who got ahead of himself, his ego drove him, and his CFO did not tell him everything that he was doing. And then when it looked stinky, the CFO simply did what most people do. He covered his butt and laid out Bernie Evers for the government to go take. And so Bernie's rotting in prison, if you will, right now, and will for the rest of his life. So I learned more in those two years than the 18 great years with CompuServe. So it's funny. Um, it's a terrible thing to go through, terrible thing to witness, but probably that event led me to start Built to Lead more than anything because I realized I want to give my life to building leaders because everything rises and falls on leadership. I don't care what it is, OSU Wrestling, um, FX, um, whatever company you're with, Columbus, you know, anything. Only goes as far as the leader, the leaders can take it. Mm -hmm. So, we're in the business of built to lead, of building leaders, and I can't think of anything better that I'd want to invest my work life in than that. That's why I'm here. Yeah, I think that's monumental. I think that's an awesome statement. So, what I'm curious about is what were some of the flaws that you noticed in Bernie that eventually led you to realize the way a leader should be? Okay. Um, we were part of the, they had, 
seven different sales arms, if you will, in the company when they bought us. And so there were seven groups of salespeople all selling WorldCom product, if you will. And in total, that was 13,000 people. Okay. So the group that I led, CompuServe, we had 650. And we, had, we were the most productive on a per unit basis. So we were Bernie's. When Bernie looked at his numbers, he saw us being the most productive team. So he listened a little bit to what we had to say. And so he gave me an audience with him down in Jackson, Mississippi. I forget the exact year, somewhere around 2000. And I went down there with our CEO, and I prepared a really good presentation explaining to him a decision I thought he ought to make as the CEO of this company that he probably just didn't know about, which was that we had 13,000 people in sales. We hadn't integrated one thing, and that we our biggest competitors were other people inside WorldCom who were undercutting what we were doing with our commercial clients because they didn't understand what we did. But they had the right to sell it because Bernie let everybody sell everything. And so I went down there to show him why that was not a good strategy and what I thought would be a better one, and I laid it out. And I told him I didn't care what he did with us because he's got to integrate people, but I said, you have 10,000 more salespeople than you need. Here's kind of, if you were, if I were you, this is the way I would logically look at setting up my sales channel. Instead of 13,000, I'd have three. That's 10,000 people you're paying a lot of money to that are a waste of money, me included. I mean, you don't need all these seven groups of highly paid vice presidents and all the other highly paid leaders. We need one leadership team, not seven. It's a huge waste of money. And he looked at me and he said, Chester, he goes, you make a good point, but I refuse to leave the dance without the people that brought me. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I remember going to the airport with the uh, CEO of our division and I called my broker and I said, I'd like you to sell my options. And he said, you want to sell them? I'm like, yeah, sell them now. That was the best decision I ever made. Um, because I, in my mind, I said, if, if we're working for a company where the leader won't make a hard call, there is no way this stock is going to hold up. And I hate to say it, but I was right. It went from when I sold it, um, it dropped 90 times in the year. So, and it's gone now. Um, so my friends that held on to the options like they told us to, <laughs> it, was, it was a horrible fiasco, which I told you earlier was one of the greatest net worth reductions next to Enron, it's the greatest one. Um, so as a leader, you gotta make hard calls. You can't keep everybody that brought you to the dance unless there's a business reason to keep them. But if you buy 57 companies, you've got to drive synergy out of the business. Does this make sense? Yeah. And I was working for somebody who wanted to be everybody's friend. And I want to be everybody's friend too. I mean, I love people, but I've got to run a business if I'm the CEO. So what do you think was it within you that allowed you to step back and take probably one of the greatest leadership roles that you can and say, hey, you know, I don't even think that you need me. That's how much, I mean, you put your entire company and the betterment of everybody else in front of what you cared about. Well, personally, I mean, you could have lost your job at that point. So what do you think was it that was in you that allowed you to realize, okay, this is, you know, this is what's for the best? 
Um, I don't know that I could say that it was any one thing, but I, I had developed a, um, a pattern as I'd matured as a man of just realizing that humans are humans, people are people, and that even though Bernie was the CEO of this big, huge company, um, and he could fire me if he wanted to, that I'd made my peace with that my job as an employee is to um, offer the people above me the truth as best I can. That's just my job. And then if that gets me fired, if I get fired for doing what is right and for speaking truth, then that's a good firing. There are things as good deaths, and that would have been a good death. And I would have, I mean, it would have hurt. I would have cried about it. I would have mourned it. And then I would have gotten up and... uh, realized that if I'm going to get fired for telling the truth, then I'm probably going to get fired for some other illogical reason down the road anyway. Better to get out of there now so while I'm young I can get to work with some system that's going to value truth, value facts. Because no system's going to last for long if you value being told what you want to hear versus being told what you need to hear. And that had just been instilled in me by a good father by a really good upbringing, by strong faith, by um, good examples for leaders that I'd worked for previous to this one. And so it was probably a combination of things that led me to just, and that's the same way I am today. Let me, this is, you know, this is who I am. This is my role here. Here's the truth. Let's just deal with it. So... Right. Does let's that answer jump. your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. Definitely, yeah. absolutely. So let's jump into, from that point, um, you realize all these things about leadership and um, in those two years, yeah. and you decided to start Built the Lead. So when did you actually start putting pen to paper and say, hey, I'm going to start a company that teaches people to be leaders? Well, previous to that, I mean, I'd already told our CEO in 1993, I went to the Center for Creative Leadership which back then was known as kind of the Harvard of leadership schools. And in one week, they, um, you're with a four-star general, um, a leader of a division of GM, a leader of the Tennessee Valley Authority, leaders of all these big companies. And I'm a little peon from CompuServe. I was like the little guy in there. So you're in this room filled with really high-powered executives. They film you from one-way mirrors. Um, they assign a psychologist with your personality to watch you and they don't tell you, and then to write a three-hour taped video of what they learned about you as they watched you in one-way mirrors dealing with fictitious leadership role plays. And in that one week that I was there and on the feedback I got from leaving there, I came back saying, man, I love what I just learned about me, and I want to do more of that. And so I went back to our CEO and said, you need to send everybody because that was like the coolest week of my life. I can't believe how much I thought I knew about me that I didn't know. And we need to do more of that. And he said, can't afford it, too expensive. I said, well, then let me start our own. And he said, all right, but I said, I've got guys that can do my job. He said, no, 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 keep your day job, do this at night. And I'm like, okay, fine. So I started the CompuServe Leadership Institute in 94, and I began to just read and start to study history and study what makes people tick, And so in 94, a year after that, I knew 
I went back and said, when I leave here, I'm going to start my own company. It's going to be called Built to Lead. We're going to build leaders. So you don't need to worry. I'm never going to go to a competitor. You don't have to worry about me. When I leave here, I'm going to leave to start my own company. And it'll have nothing to do with technology. It's going to have to do with building leaders. So I spent the time from 94 to 2002 just mastering that craft in the corporate world. Does that make sense? Yeah, so even though Bernie had me running this division, I was also running the Leadership Institute, and I got to meet a bunch of WorldCom leaders through that so that when they bought us, I did the same thing for them. Boy, did I learn a lot. Their leaders were nowhere near the caliber of CompuServe's. I mean, so there was no surprise to me why their leader was different. They were different. Um, I could talk about that for an hour. Uh, so I knew I was going to start Built to Lead nine years, in essence, before I did. And the only reason I took nine years was fear. And I was just too afraid, like, what if I start this and nobody, what if nobody will hire me? You know, what if I start this and it's a great idea, but I don't have what it takes to build the business? to do it, you know? And so pure fear kept me in the corporate world really nine years longer than I needed to because I had the clarity, this is my opus, this is what I love, this is who I am, this is a no-brainer. But it took me nine years to actually pull the trigger. So I love telling that story to my clients because many of them are a lot like me, that they, they're working, they're highly successful. All my clients are CEOs or business owners. Many of them um, are CEOs and business owners in a company they don't love anymore. And so I tell them my job is to get them to fall back in love or to fly to their new love. And many of them, they know exactly, they tell me, here's my opus, let me tell you what I'd love to do. Let me tell you what I'd do for free. But they sit in their highly paid labor for years because they're afraid, even though they have more money than dirt, in my mind, in their mind, it's not quite enough. And so they labor longer than they need to before they pursue their opus um, out of fear. And so I always tell them, I, I understand what you're going through. I went through the same drill. And, and I actually think it was good for me that I stayed those years because I learned so much that I can relate to my clients now. But in hindsight, I, I was just chicken little. Now, I think we're just getting to the good part that I think that we really want to make the meat of our time with you about, but what I'm really curious about is what you learned about yourself. I'm always so curious about how be people become self-aware. I think that's the hardest, at least for me at 24, when I've talked with Mike and other people, it's so hard to become self-aware about who you really are, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. So what I'm curious is when you went to that camp, what you learned about yourself that you took away and you were so excited about, and then what you learned in almost like a fast-forward version over those nine years that prepared you to really take the leap? Well, um, again, that's a long-winded answer. <laughs> what I learned in that week, um, I, let me give you this, try to just give you the highlights. The, probably the, um, the biggest thing I learned in that week was that... I was, um, I didn't know how intuitive I was at reading people. And when I, when we did all these, these group exercises with total strangers that were, um, all in big jobs, I was amazed how they were so intelligent and yet 
stupid. I mean, like these were brilliant people who couldn't read the, that the people were disconnecting from their from their thought, from their idea, from where they wanted to go with our group, and they were just blindly continuing to blather on, and nobody was listening. Nobody was going to go follow them, and yet they they missed it. And I would const I was I would lead the group by interjecting questions to engage the disengaged parties and um, that I received unbelievable ratings from these peers because I never really said anything all I did was ask good questions and get everybody playing and they perceived me as having all these leadership skills that I'd never really thought much about and when you did all these evaluations of each other I was getting these incredible ratings from people that that clearly didn't have anything to gain because we didn't work together. But what they were commenting on was my ability to have influence without leadership. And so I learned, yeah, you've kind of always been like that, Chad, and I'd never really paid attention to that. But I went back to my childhood and how, as a kid, I was always kind of able to gain the influence over adults by being curious and by asking good questions. And that was a skill that I really, I didn't, it wasn't that I wasn't aware of it, but I wasn't aware of what a signature strength it was. And so going to that, that one week at high, that is something I got to build on. And the other thing was that whether you did a test on your, they did test on your IQ, your EQ, um, your creativity, all kinds of tests. They invented tests, I swear. Um, but the one that, that I scored the highest on, and, and they told me it was one of the highest they'd seen, was on creativity. They said my creativity was off the charts. I had never really thought that. But as I've thought about me in later life, there, there was a lot of truth to that. Um, I just didn't really realize it. And so creating Built to Lead wasn't like a big stretch because that's like sort of who I am. And reading all these other pieces of content about leadership over the years and not worrying that I was going to write just more rubbish. I mean, I am a writer and I didn't know that, but in that one week I began to realize that that's my creative outlet is the writing, um, which then led me to do a lot more reading, which made my writing better and led me to do the work that I, I didn't realize... I, everybody thought I was an extrovert, but after that week I realized I'm really a borderline introvert because I love thinking and reading and writing and reflective just as much as I love speaking and listening and connecting with people. And so that week gave me the freedom to um, not always try to be the life of the party. I, I go to parties now and I hardly say anything. I used to always be the jokester. Now I tend to mostly go and listen and learn about people. And I realize I enjoy those parties way more than when there's a party where I have to be on. Um, so I could go on and on about what I learned. But um, what I learned that week was knowing, knowing yourself is a journey of discovery that will never stop. And so all of us are blind. And you can't discover everything about you by just becoming aware, by having 
looking at your navel and humming and thinking deep thoughts is only going to show you so much you need other people. These psychologists, these trained professionals showed me there's the need for a coach. And I want to be one of those. And so I learned that's where I want to go. And having a bride like I have had for 34 years now gave me a real truth teller and the value of someone who just tells me the unvarnished truth. And I'm like, I used to really get ticked off at her and upset. Like, why can't you see the positive? Why do you always tell me the stuff that's not so positive? And I would really want her to tell me what I wanted to hear. And she would just tell me, well, Chad, I think you're wrong on this. I think you're off base on that. I think you need to work on this. And your hair doesn't look good like that. And any number of which turned out to be really great coaching. And to this day, she's my best builder. And so she's made me much more self-aware than I have. So uh, this whole journey never ends, and you can't do it without a few friends. And today, most humans don't have any friends. I don't care if you're a leader, a follower, a student, an athlete, a CEO, or a beggar on the streets. The, the world we live in now has people focused on how many people friend them on social media, but they don't really have anybody that knows them well enough to tell them, like, man, you're blind to this. You're, you're drinking too much. Um, you're eating too much. You're talking too much, whatever it might be. Um, we have a real lack of, of a social network that makes us more aware. We just have a social network that makes us feel better. That's okay, but I mean, nobody became great by feeling better. Humans become great by being better. And the way we become better is having somebody tell us, man, you're screwing up here. And that's what a real friend does. And most most humans that I run into, they hire me simply because they have nobody telling them the truth. They don't have a friend. And they hire me to be a paid friend. That's a good job. Mike should pay me, I think, sometimes. 90% of the time, I think he should pay me. I tell him everything that's wrong with him. Uh, he gets so angry. Isn't that crazy? It's, 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 my you know what? And it's funny, you know, it's a funny story, but I think the first time anyone told me something that I never realized about myself that to this day I still remember was I was sitting in a room with you Chet and you told us hey take this test and it's an optimism test yeah and I'm like I'm the most optimistic person around there's no I'm gonna kill this test All right. you know and I thought for sure I was gonna score super high and I got I think like negative three or four which was very pessimistic yeah and I was mad for weeks <laughs> right. there's no way Chet's wrong he's gotta be wrong and then uh, one practice Tom told something to me and I got really upset about it and I realized about three days later, Chet was right, hmm. and I was taking it the wrong way. And I think that's the hardest part about it. So how do you surround yourself? How do you find people to be those truth tellers for you? How do you find and surround yourself with these people that are going to uh, make you a better person, be a real friend? Yeah. How did you find the people that helped you, that you started Built to Lead with? Was it just by yourself at first, too? I mean, you eventually have other team members now, correct? Mm-hmm. All the Built to Lead builders are former clients. So I didn't find them. I don't go out recruiting people to join me in this effort. By design, the way I've built the business is I don't want to make it big. I never set out to make it big. I want to make it the best. And um, 
So as I began to build CEOs and business owners and they fell in love with what they learned and they said, Chet, I think I want to join you. I would always say you probably don't. Uh, you have a great gig here. And if you follow me, I'm going to make you be an entrepreneur just like you've been. So I'm not going to hire you. You'll have to come in here and find your own. You know, I'll help you, but you're going to have to go at your own because if we're going to, if we build CEOs and business owners, um, they don't, they're not going to want to work with you. If I'm the owner and you're my employee, they're always going to want to work with me because they're going to work with a peer. They're going to want to work with someone that knows what it's like to be out there naked and not have somebody paying you. So all built to lead builders are entrepreneurs just like I am. They just come under the umbrella, but they all, they're all entrepreneurs just as I am. That's by design. And that's why we're smaller than we are. I mean, we could be a lot bigger if I wanted to just hire people, but I don't. So that answers your question. That Everybody that's a part of the built to lead band has been built to lead. And they just fell in love with it and said they want to make it their career. Your question about how do you find truth tellers? Um, I don't know that there's any good recipe to follow, but here's what I would tell you. If you want to find truth tellers, seek truth. So next time somebody gives you a hard message, ask them to tell you more. Okay. So next time a Tom Ryan in your world says, hey man, you know what? You're really hard to coach. You know, you're really hard to talk to about something that you're doing that's not so good. I'm here to try to help you and you're hard to help. Next time you hear that, instead of doing what most humans do, which is triple D, defend, deny, destroy. Defend yourself, deny the need to change, and try to destroy the arguer. Right? Don't do that. Say, tell me more. So if you want to find true friends, seek feedback. Seek it. Go out and say, hit me. Go out and say, hey, Josh, hit me. Tell me something I don't know. And what we're very often looking to do is to go tell Manuch what he needs to work on, to be a truth teller, right? That's the easy end. What's the hard end of being a real friend is hearing it. So I always tell my clients, get really good at hearing it before you speak it. If you want to be a true friend, don't worry about speaking truth to, the, to another. Learn how to hear it. And you'll be amazed how many true friends you'll find when you're somebody who actually listens, hears hard stuff that they don't actually probably want to hear about themselves, but they love that you want to hear it about you. Those kind of people have the potential to be true friends. Your job, though, is to discern, you know, What's their motive? Are they telling you the truth? Do they have an agenda? So this is why it's not easy just to say, hey, you can't just let it all in and assume that all these people are telling you the truth. There'll be many people dressed like friends that are not. All right? So your job is to be really strong in your core, know who you are, know who they are, be able to read them, and when it's sincere, let it in, and decide what you're going to do with it. And if you do that consistently enough with another human being, they are going to become a friend. I haven't seen that. My true friends are people I listen to. And they listen to me. But it starts with being a friend. So for the listening base out there that may be still 
yeah. isn't catching on exactly what Built to Lead does. Can you take us through what the process looks like today of you acquiring new people that you work with and how that's changed since you started the company, if it's changed at all? It's not. has not changed. No. It's always been, I, I had, my big dream in starting Built to Lead was to do the work. So I didn't want to build a business. I wanted to build leaders. So when I set out to start Built to Lead in 2002, I decided I'm going to write my own content. I'm not going to be holding to anybody. I'm not going to f- do somebody else's thing. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do it exactly the way I want to do it, and I'm going to incent myself to do the work. So I'm not going to incent myself to build a franchise and take licensing fees from people who use my content. I don't want to. I know if I do that, I'll be really good at it, and then I won't be able to do the work because there'll be no time for me to work with the crappies of the world. I'll be out just building this big business, not working with Grappy or with um, any of my other CEO or business owner clients. I'll just be working on being a CEO of a big company. I don't want to do that. So I started the business by focusing and, and building the framework so I would be incented to do the work. And I don't make money off the other builders by design so the only way I make money is doing the work so therefore and that's the way I plan to do it I don't plan to stop doing the work so people say what's your end game I said my end game is to work and burn out bright so I don't I believe in the Bible I've never seen the word retire in the Bible I think it's an invented gig I don't believe we're meant to retire like everybody I know who's retired is bored and bummed and dying a lot quicker than they need to. And so I plan to burn out bright, which means, you know, flying off some mountain at 85 or 95 or whenever it is because I took a turn too fast um, because I was still living life full tilt the way I am now. And I'm going to go out that way and doing the work, probably be on a ride with a bunch of my friends and clients. And I just missed the turn, and I guess that's the way I would like to go. Um, but I'm incented to run the business, to do it the way I've started it, with no end, no end date in sight. Um, it's never going to be an IPO. It's never going to be. We're never going public. I've had people try to buy it already, which is just hysterical to me. It's like you know, that's not what I'm. It's not what I'm doing this for. So, did that answer your question? Yeah, it did. And I think what I'm curious about, and I don't know, Michael, you're going to jump there if it was the same question, but when you approach, do you approach CEOs or they refer no, to you or I mean, they come to you? They're all referrals. So when I started, I went to the CEOs I had worked for and said, hey, I'm starting Built to Lead. I'd like you to refer me to some CEOs, business owners you know, that you think you know who I am, you know enough about me to know what the way I'm going to do it. Refer me to some people that you think would align with Built to Lead. And that's how I started it. That first year, I had more clients than I could imagine. It just, again, I was really fortunate. I had just um, instant work to do. And uh, from there, it's just been referral. And still to this day, I mean, I'm referred more people than we can work with. So I refer stuff to other builders. Because... That's that's been the kind of the I don't know if it's been a surprise, but it's been a real blessing that 
Um, I always, when I started this, I did not want to be out selling it. I wanted to be doing the work. And I figured if you do good work for one or two CEOs, these people all talk. Every CEO I know is a smart They've not gotten into this position without being smart and using this. And so people are going to come and say, hey, what's going on? You seem like you're doing a better job running your company, running your life. What's the deal? And if they say Built to Leads had something to do with it, somebody's going to pick up the phone and say, I want a little of that. And that's exactly what's happened. And my question, I think, was more involved with you were talking about never wanting to retire and always wanting to keep going. And I think... A lot of that is because it's your opus. Yeah. Why would you sell something that you love doing? But can we talk a little bit more about, for our listeners who maybe have never heard the term opus, what an opus is and yeah. how that applies to what you're doing now? Yeah. Well, there's two Latin words that translate literally to the English word work. One is labore. When you hear that word, what do you think of? Labor. Labor. When you think of labor, what do you think of? What word? Work, hard work. Hard work. So if you're a woman, you would say birth pains, right? Um, Labor is associated with something hard, difficult. The other word is Latin word that translates literally to the English word work is opus. Now, when I hear opus, I think of opus one. And you're probably not old enough to know that's the first really good American one. Back in 1974, it was Baron von Rothschild and an American who's slipping my name, or whose name is slipping my mind at the moment, it'll come to me, Mondavi. It was Mondavi and his big dream to have America build a good wine. We basically had table wine. We didn't make anything good back in the 70s. It was a joke. Napa wasn't anything. Sonoma wasn't around. And this guy, Mondavi, said, I want to make a great wine here. And so he sat up with this French guy and... They made a really good wine, and they named it Opus One because it represented their labor of love. And that's what it means. To have an Opus means to have a labor, but it's a labor that one loves. And so at Built to Lead, we played off that and developed an acrostic around the Latin term Opus that we we help our clients use to figure out their O, meaning their overarching vision, what's their big dream for their work in life, Their P, their purpose, the defining statement of their work. Their U, the unifying strategies for how they're actually going to make their big dream, powered by their purpose, come into fruition. So that's the unifying strategy. That's how they do it. And then finally, the S stands for their scorecard for significance. So how are they going to know they're making progress? I mean, it's really great to have a big dream, you know, to have a sense of purpose, to have clear strategies for getting there, but... If you don't have a scorecard, if you don't know you're making progress, you tend to kind of run out of gas. So that's this tool that we've developed at Built to Lead that all of our clients have really come to to love because it brings clarity to like their big dream and how they live it out. So, um, you, you know, it's it only means work. That's what Opus means. But a built to lead, it's it's just so much more than that. It it's a tool that our clients recognize helps them make work uh, their dream, and so that's why I don't plan to retire because this is my opus. 
So if it's one's labor of love, why would you leave it? I don't know. Doesn't make any sense. So when you deal with these leaders, I think what I'm really curious about, I think I think if I'm understanding Opus right and I'm taking it from the right perspective, I almost feel like it'll give meaning. Like, you know, you you find these CEOs out there and these people have achieved amazing success wealth-wise, but they're just not fulfilled. Sure. And finding something like your Opus, I think, would have to bring that fulfillment. But what I'm curious about is when you approach these high-level performers, are there certain attributes that you find in these people that have helped them get to where they are today and then certain things that you notice a lot of them struggling with that have that lead them to feel unfilled or lead them to not know what their Opus is on their own? Oh, boy. I mean... All the clients that, that we work with are really successful people. You know, I mean, these are not broken. We're working with business owners and CEOs. They're all doing well. Um, and they have, almost all of them, a sense of meaning and purpose in their work. Right? So we're not working with a bunch of clients. I mean, they wouldn't hire us if they didn't have some of that. We would be... I mean, we're not, if that isn't at least already in there, what we're speaking about is going to be French. They're just going to go, no, 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 not for me. So let me be clear. Our clients are not unfulfilled and doing meaningless work before we come on the scene. They are already engaged in work that they align with, and it gives them a sense of meaning. And because of that, they want more. It aligns with things we go, this could be the ticket to getting further to making it even better. And so, just like your wrestling coach, we came to a built-to-lead practice from one of our clients. He sat in on it. He already had a real, I mean, you've known him. He already had a real sense of purpose and meaning and being the coach of Ohio State Wrestling. It wasn't like he was loathing that job. He already loved it. But sitting in that practice and seeing this team of people, I could just see his eyes light up. Like he's like, okay, now this is something different than... He'd been looking for something that could give them another edge, give the team another edge, give him an edge. And he hadn't found anything yet that felt right. And when he saw that practice, saw the dynamics, saw the way we'd work, saw the way they were engaged, it was just like, it was like okay, that's it. I won't build to lead in here. So it's just added to something that he already had a sense of purpose and meaning. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. and, and so most of our clients are like your coach. Same thing with their work. And when they see Bill to lead, their, their friend refers them. They come to a practice. They observe it. And it's like, oh, my gosh. I want, I want that for my team. Um, when, when, so when we run into clients who are referred to us, and it doesn't click, I know right away they're never engaging. You know? So the ones where work is, it's all about I want to make more money and I don't see this helping me make more money. Um, huh, no, I can't. I never tell anybody this is going to make you more money. I don't know. But it, it is going to give you a labor of love, which is certainly going to make you happier. It's going to make you more satisfied. Whether that organically translates to you're making more profits, that depends on your market, your industry, your competition, your employees. I mean, a whole bunch of variables I can't control. Does that make sense? I never promise anybody any ROI, and they all want to know 
what is the return? And I always tell them, I don't know. I don't. I have no idea. It depends on how hard they want to work and the quality of the team we're working with. And so um, the ones that don't engage Built to Lead are ones that just want quick paybacks, quick returns. They want really shallow promises and quick results. And I always tell them, we don't do any of that. (laughs) None of this stuff works like a pill. It works more like the way wrestlers work, like slowly, laboriously, hard, painful, a lot of time. If you're going to become a world-class wrestler, it's not because you just worked hard once or twice. It's a lifestyle of embracing what it takes to keep shedding weight, keep working on moves that you already know how to do, but that you don't stop working on. You just continue to master, continue to master. Those are our clients. They're people who who love the idea of getting better and who embrace the, the grind, the fact that it's hard work. Because I always tell people, this is going to be the hardest work you do. And it is. It's really hard to work on you, really hard to work on practicing with a team where you're not just telling them what to do, where you're actually involving them. That's really hard for a CEO to relinquish that control. So what do some of the practices look like and some of the lessons and goals that you have in those practices for these leaders that you're bringing on and your training? When you say, what do they look like? What do you mean by that? What does practice look like? You mean with the typical client, what does practice look like? Yeah, let's start off with the practice. I think that's a good, yeah. good approach. Well, let me tell you what it, what it starts with is every business owner, CEO that we work with, always wants to go to team practice right away. By that I mean the kind of practices that you participated in. And what we always tell them is we'll get to that, but we're going to start with you one-on-one. And so most every one of them balks at that. And they're like, well, I'm not the problem. And I'm like, well, that's exactly why we're starting with you. Because if you don't think you're the problem, then you have no idea. You haven't studied leadership enough to know you are the problem. And if you get better, the entire system gets better. If we, um, if we work on the team getting better before you get better, they're going to be questioning why are they getting better faster than you are as a leader. Now that's a recipe for getting your high performers to want to lead. Do you want that? No, none of them do. <laughs> so my message is we've got to work on you and get you to a level where the team is going, I want, hey, I've noticed this leader has changed. They have grown. What's up with it? You smoking weed? You know what I mean? Um, are you doing something illegal? Because your behavior's changed. Something's going on. Tell me, what is it? And that's what we want. We want you to grow as a human being, you to grow as a leader. And we want your team to be curious about what the deal is. When you tell them, well, I've been working in becoming built to lead, and I'm going to bring it to you someday. Now when we start practice with them, they will be ready. They will be like, I'm all in. I've seen this. I don't know what it is, but this voodoo or whatever it is that's been happening with you, I want. And now I get it, I'm in. And so the way practice looks, it starts one-on-one with the leader for at least a year before we work with the team. And uh, that rules out a number of people because they'll go, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And that's perfect. Then we don't want you as a client. 
And once we've done that for a year and you've built your core, meaning you know who you are, you know what you stand for, you know what you believe, you know why you're here, you know what you love, and you've developed a process to tie all that together, your core, you know Europus, you align the team to Europus, now we take the team into practice so that we can build the kind of trust between teammates that's going to allow teammates to make the CEO better, the COO better, the CFO better, the controller better, the sales guy better, because in our practice we're going to build trust where in an ideal situation when Grampy walked into his first practice with Choice, one of my clients, he couldn't tell who the positional leaders were because the team looked like a bunch of peers. Because there was such trust between teammates, people were calling each other out, speaking truth and love, asking hard questions all around. Unlike most teams where only the leaders speak and the only people that get challenged are people low on the totem pole, nobody ever challenges up. In a built lead system, everybody gets challenged because everybody needs to be. And so everybody is trusted that I can challenge you and you and you and you without, as long as my challenge is from a good place to try to make you better, I'm not going to have consequence to that because you're above me. In normal systems, it never happens. We only challenge those beneath us. When you're in a one-up position, it's fair. When I'm above you, I can challenge you, but when you are above me, I just tell you what you want to hear. That's not the built to lead practice. So in the built to lead practice, we, we build the kind of trust that allows truth and uh, challenge out of belief to be kind of the norm. That's what makes brotherhoods, that's what makes teams really strong, is the lack of fear, just let's, like peers, like the ancient Spartans, we're peers, so it doesn't matter if you're King Leonidas or one of the peers, we're all peers. And that's, that's how we build high-performing teams. And that's the, that's the whole point of practice. And so we start with practice one, we build a little bit of trust, we go through the 8 Essentials playbook, and the, cl- the client we've been with the longest, we're on practice 212. And so everybody wants to get to practice 212 in five practices. And I always tell my clients, it takes a long time to build the kind of trust where you can speak your mind, no matter who's in the room. We'll get there, but you've got to be patient. We've got to take baby steps. So not everybody, it takes a long time to build the kind of trust that people see when they come to see a practice of a team that's been practicing for five years. And I always tell people, just... It's good for you to see this, but don't expect this day one. This took five years to build. So, slow, grind. I mean, OSU Wrestling, we're, we just completed our second year. First year wasn't a full year, so we've just, we're just getting started. And the level of trust with guys like Tomasello and Kyle Snyder, who've been there for the two years but when they're seniors, I mean, the level of trust between them and the incoming freshmen, when the freshmen see what, what's happened with these seniors, it's gonna, they're going to be, I mean, they're already strong, but they're going to be a lot stronger. And again, we're just getting started. I know OSU's already really good, but I guarantee you they're going to be better. That's what happens. I, I've noticed that, I think. 
especially in the incoming freshman, I saw a difference this year, mm-hmm. past year that I was on the team. I was in, and I saw that the incoming freshmen were more willing to ask questions because the leadership were willing to ask questions. Yeah, and I, I've noticed, especially in guys like um, Colin Moore, Jose, those guys, they're buying in one hundred percent. But um, I want to jump into something that. I think is going to apply and something our leaders can take away, not our leaders, our listeners, yeah. who are hoping to be leaders, can take away, which sure. is talking a little bit about um, learned optimism. And I touched on it earlier about talking about how I learned I was pessimistic. Hmm. And I think that one of the biggest problems for anyone today in society is that we've been, we're in a society where we're taught to be pessimists. Hmm. And so can we jump into a little bit on learned optimism and what is it and how do you learn it? Well, again, you ask these questions, and uh, if people are looking for sound bites, it's, I feel I feel, I apologize to your listeners that there's no short answer to these questions. Um, learned optimism is one of the essentials. We in the twelve essentials of personal excellence. It's one of the essentials. Is you if you're going to be successful in life, you have to learn optimism, which doesn't mean you have to learn Pollyanna. Or how to look at things through rose-colored glasses and say everything is good today, no matter what, and just keep repeating it as if that makes you an optimist. That is not what we're talking about. So um, what you have to be able to do, though, to learn optimism is to learn, first and foremost, to become aware of the way you explain events in your life as they happen to you. Life is hard. We all know that. And um, some of us make life harder simply by the way we interpret events as they happen. I'll give you an example. I was in, uh, doing practice with my one international client, I told you at the beginning of this, in London um, a little over a week ago. Our la- we did a three-day leadership retreat, so it's three long days of built-to-lead practice, sun up to sundown. It's pretty tiring. Day three is the day that Brexit um, was announced. And I'm in London with a bunch of people who didn't like it. And the beginning of practice, I looked around the room at a bunch of executives who were depressed, who were taking an event out of their control. Their nation decided to leave the European Union. And you would have thought that someone had shot one of their... First, firstborn. Everybody was like, we're dead. Like, this is going to be awful. The pound's going to go to nothing. We're, the, all these other countries are going to make life miserable. And, and they, didn't even, they wanted to, like, not even practice. Like, they wanted to spend the time as a company talking about what strategies are we going to do to react to this and how are we going to handle it. And they needed to learn optimism. And so I walked them through, let me tell you exactly what you're doing right now, which is you're taking an event and you are explaining it to yourself in the most negative way, simply because the media is priming you that this means that, means this, means that, and they're getting you to forecast out into the future what this is going to mean for your company, for you personally. And there's no evidence that we, there's no evidence today to, to back up that this event is going to lead to this kind of adversity. 
But in your mind, you're already playing the tape forward. And so now you're beginning to get depressed. You're getting negative. This is what Seligman calls, and he's the guy who coined the term learned optimism, Dr. Seligman. He calls this learned helplessness. And so I'm here to tell you, you're learning right now, and you're wiring your brain to learn how to do nothing the next time adversity strikes you personally. Now, if you want to be mediocre and lead a miserable life someday when you're old, learn how to be helpless. Learn how to be hopeless. Learn how to explain events in the most negative light you can. If you want to be depressed and you want to be on prescription drugs, just keep doing what you're doing. Now, there is nothing about Brexit that tells us what the future is going to hold. Just because Britain opted out, we have no idea if this is the greatest thing for you as a countryman or the worst. To, to be determined. So, you have an event, you're explaining it negatively, and there is no evidence that says this is a negative. It, we don't know yet. So your job is to change your mind. And so I walk them through, you've explained this event in the most pessimistic. Now let's go optimistic. What's the most optimistic way to look at this? This could be a great thing. This could be a real turning point. for. This could be simply a great negotiation by, by England to make changes in the European Union that will be good for everybody. It could be really positive. We don't know either side of that. But what gives us energy is to say, what we do know is that event, England voting to opt out of the European Union, can we change it? No. Can we do anything about it? No. Um, So can we make it better by getting depressed and stewing and taking our, our mind and just letting it go and ruminate on it? Will that make it better? No. So what we can do is keep working. And so in the space of about 15 minutes, I took a group of 25. They weren't all Brits, but they were all from Europe. And I took a group of 25 through Learned Optimism by just talking them through what they were thinking about an event that happened to them out of their control and how they had reacted pessimistically for no other reason than that's what they've been primed to do. And I said, you need to just Remember this, keep working. What, what will make this good is if you keep working. And if you keep working on making your company better, regardless of what happens with your country, if your company keeps getting better, if you keep getting better, if you keep working on making your technology better for your end users, for your customers, regardless of what happens with your country, this will be all right. Because right? you can control your reaction. So learned optimism is all about changing your mindset about the way you explain events to yourself. Most of us, because of our wiring to survive, explain events negatively. You wouldn't be alive if you didn't explain when you touched something hot and you got burned. If you didn't explain that negatively, you'd keep touching something hot and you'd keep getting burned. So it's been wired into you to learn that when you touch something hot, to explain that bad event by pulling away. And saying, I'll never do that again. So it's really good when you run out in traffic and you got hit by a car. You learn, it's not good to run out into traffic. That produces a bad event. So hopefully if you didn't die, you learned, when I run out into traffic, before I run, I'm going to look both ways. Right? So it works really well for survival. But if you want to thrive, if you want to do great work, you're going to have to learn to be more optimistic because you're going to have to take many things that feel like running out in traffic. You're going to have to take risks. 
If you're going to be an entrepreneur and you explain everything negatively, you'd never start anything. Okay? So if you want to do anything great in this world, you're going to have to learn to be more optimistic. And you're going to have to learn to change your fear of failing into your love of adventure, of your love of, of creating, of your love of doing something great. And so that's what learned optimism is. It's simply a mindset shift that is required if you want to become exceptional. There is no way to be elite being pessimistic. We've elected one president in the United States who was a pessimist. One. His name was Richard Nixon. We tried to impeach him. He resigned. He's the only one. And he's the only one that was a pessimist. When Seligman did his test against all of the writings of every president, because his research came obviously before, after, excuse me, Nixon was gone. But he did the research. You can read it in the book, Learn Optimism. It's really cool. Every president we've elected, wildly optimistic. Every follower wants a leader that's optimistic. We vote for hope. If you're going to go, if you're going to stay working here, you're going to believe in the leader's vision and their dream, and you're going to hear them optimistically, connecting you to it because they believe in it. If, if you work for a leader who is pessimistic about where we're going, why we're going there, and how we're going to get there, you will not last long. Um, so like it or not your survival wiring is your enemy and you've got to learn how to change it and that's why we built that essential into the playbook because it's like one of these things that people don't like to talk about well I'd rather be realistic Um, I'm like I believe in that well no you don't bottom line is nobody gets married realistically I ain't the first person. If if I told my wife, I'm just getting, I'm marrying you just because I'm realistic about our future together, she would say, well, I don't want to be married to some realist. Why don't you marry me because you think I'm the greatest thing in the world and you think our life together is going to be great. Now, that's really unrealistic when you look at the world of marriage, isn't it? Over half of them now end in divorce. But I guarantee you nobody would get married if the two of them didn't both see that they have a big dream together that's wildly optimistic about you're the one for me. Yeah, you're the one for me. And I'm wild about our future. There ain't nobody getting married to a pessimist who says, yeah, I think you're the best I can do. I guess you're all right. I mean, you know, that's just funny. So it it's true for love. It's also true for work. I mean... You will never get anyone to join your company if you haven't learned to be optimistic. Even if learning optimism means you have to face the brutal facts of the reality is that we're a startup. It's going to be hard. I can't guarantee you this, but it's going to be fun. We're going to work at it, and we're going to discover it together. I mean, it doesn't mean you tell people stuff that's ridiculous. That's not what I'm talking about. But you give an optimistic view of the future that's also honest. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. That's learned optimism. See, I told you it wasn't a short answer. Yeah. And uh, I think that, that puts us right out of time, Chet. So uh, we really appreciate <laughs> oh, yeah, you being are. on the show. That's a good place to end. Yeah. And um, I'm going to kick it over to Josh real quick for a recap before we, we go here. Yeah. Uh, before I go ahead and give a recap, I guess just one question. Do you have anything you want to leave us with? Is there anything that, you know, if you have 
I, you know, I was almost curious. We keep you here all day, like you said, with all the different yeah. things you've created within your company. And I mean, it's taken years to develop and it could go on and on. But if you have a minute in an elevator with somebody who wants to become an amazing leader and wants to better their life, mm-hmm. is there something that you go to that you tell them? Yeah, that the leaders are believers, period. And so if somebody wants to be a leader, I, they got, I got to know, what do you believe in? Tell me why I would want to follow you. Because I'm going to sniff really quickly if you really believe it or if it's BS. And every leader I've ever that's passed the sniff test, it's because they really believe. I may not believe what they believe, but they do. So the bottom line to all of leadership is leaders are believers. I don't care what it is. That's the melody line. And... You've got to really do, as a leader, you've got to really do your homework to deepen your belief. Your belief in yourself, your belief in your team, your belief in your vision, your belief in your company. Um, Nobody will have more belief than the leader. It's fact. And so leaders are believers. And I would challenge all of your listeners, if they want to be leaders... The only way that's going to be successful and enduring is if they they know why. Um, and it's got to come back to their beliefs. So the reason why I told you I do built to lead the way I do is because I believe in what I'm doing. I believe in why I'm doing it. And the depth of my belief has led me to set the business up exactly the way it's set up. And other people may not believe in that at all, but I do. And the ones that join Built to Lead go, when I ask them, why'd you hire me? You interviewed five coaches. You hired me and, and I, don't even, I don't even live here. You want me to travel? And why Built to Lead? Why me? And they said, almost every time, the short answer is they say, because you actually believe this. And I'm like, well, that's a good reason. Because you're right, I do. And so just remember that as a listener. You got to believe. Whatever you're leading. If you don't believe in it, you can't lead it. That's awesome. That's a great place to end. And uh, thanks again, Chad, for your time. It's always a great time getting to speak with you and hear you talk. I always take a lot out of it. And, you know, every time I've had a chance to spend time around you, I think I've bettered my life from it. So it's an awesome experience. I think our listeners will get a lot out of it. And, uh, again, guys, that's Conquering Columbus with Chet Scott. Well, everything linked up in the show notes and uh, built to lead. We'll talk to you guys later. If you like that episode, Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, social media. We're all over the place, guys. Share it with your friends. Also want to ask you if you could do us a big favor. Check out that podcast app you're listening to us on and go ahead and click that subscribe button. Again, it really helps us out and it makes sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. Last thing we want to do before we let you go here is give one last shout out to all of our incredible sponsors. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, 
mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. And if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city, please reach out to me at mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. There will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode. And if you guys could fill that out for us, we'd really appreciate it. All right, folks, that's all we got. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.